0: get the glory. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as you turn to Luke chapter 2 in your Bibles, uh, either paper Bible or digital Bible on a screen, uh, we are coming to this time of the year that's the most fun if you're a kid under a certain age or if you have kids under a certain age or if you're around kids under a certain age. You spend a lot of time with these kids. Uh, we went to get our Christmas tree yesterday, uh, we get it home, we get it put up, and one of our little ones was like, okay, tomorrow's Christmas. And no, um, in fact, they, they talk about waiting as sleeps, so one more sleep till Christmas. Like, no, not one more sleep, we got about 30 sleeps until Christmas, which I, I could have said 3,000, to them it's the same amount of time. Um, but that's part of the fun. Before we get too old and cynical and jaded, and we lose all of that joy and wonder but for us as Christians it's truly one of the holy days or holidays that we make much of because for us it's the celebration of the advent or the coming of our Messiah the promised one it's for us it's the celebration of one of the huge theological truths that our faith rests on like if this is not true Christianity falls apart if God did not come in flesh Fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ incarnate, God incarnate. If that is not true, we have faith in a fairy tale. We have wishful thinking faith. We have faith and hope in rules and regulations or just this cultural thing that we do in the South. We show up in a building like this and we do this church thing. But if it is true, then it changes everything. And of course, we proclaim it is true. Um, so hopefully as we go through this season with the gifts and the lights and the trees and the fudge and the eggnog and all this stuff with family and friends and parties and events, hopefully we don't lose sight of who we're celebrating, that God became a man and specific aspects of Christ our Messiah coming in some ways in which he brings us hope and joy and peace and love. And so today we want to focus on this idea of hope, the Messiah coming. The Messiah being promised, rather, brings us hope, has always brought God's people hope. And in Luke 2, we find probably the most traditional account of the birth narrative of Jesus the Messiah, his birth followed by the announcement from the angelic choir to the shepherds who went and worshipped him where he was born. But I want our focus to be on what happened next, after the scene at the manger, after the shepherds show up. So beginning in verse 21 of Luke 2. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. As you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul. That the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now imagine the scene Mary and Joseph entering the temple with eight day old baby Jesus, and from seemingly nowhere, he's taken from the arms of his mother into the arms of some old guy, Simeon, who's praising God in prayer over Jesus and blessing Mary and Joseph. Now, I know moms here are thinking this is exactly the kind of stranger danger that we want our kids about no way i'm handing over my eight-day-old infant to some weird old guy in the temple well it's an ancient eastern culture so very different from our hyperware on alert culture of today and even more important mary and joseph and and even her cousin elizabeth and her husband john they had all been visited by angels already to prepare them for the virgin conception and the birth of jesus they had already been visited by shepherds at the manger scene who had also been visited by an angelic choir in the fields. So an old guy who wants to hold your baby in the temple, just, eh, that's not that bad, considering all that we've already seen and experienced. Even an old guy praising God and prophesying over your eight-day-old baby. But, But realize that from Simon's perspective, Simeon's perspective, rather, there's nothing about Mary and Joseph that identified them as Jesus the Messiah and his parents. Jesus wasn't glowing. Mary and Joseph weren't appearing in a certain way or wearing anything. The offering they brought to the temple of two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the most common offering, the cheapest offering that a family could, could bring, which may indicate they were a, a family that was very poor. And so, did how, so how did Simeon know that this was the kid and they were the parents? And Luke tells us there in verse 25. Verse um, 25. Looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. So guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. Side note, uh, there was an old Baptist pastor when I was a kid who I remember saying, I remember him saying to churches where he would do revivals, you know, God has told me I'm not going to die until Jesus returns. I could call his name, but don't need to. Well, he's he's dead now. Like that obviously was not the Holy Spirit telling him, you're not going to taste death until Jesus returns. It was well-intentioned, great desire. He wants to experience the return of Christ, but not actually a word from God. But Simeon, on the other hand, actually had a word from God, actually was guided by the Holy Spirit and experienced the presence of the Messiah before he died. This special Word from the Spirit of God. And on a seemingly random day, the Spirit of God leads him into the temple to a small family with an eight day old baby and tells Simeon he's the one. But he's not the only one who got to experience this. As we keep reading, verse 36, there was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years she did not leave the temple serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna was married seven years. She's been a widow for 84 years. If you assume she married around 15, that means she's about 106 at this point. The average lifespan in the first century is nowhere near that old. So she's been around for a while, especially as a widow who depended on others to take care of her. But she had developed this lifestyle, living in the temple, and had given her life to worshiping God and praising him. And like Simeon, she sees baby Jesus. It's not said, but could be inferred. The Spirit of God spoke to her and made it clear, this is the one. And she began to speak about him to all who look forward to the redemption of Israel. Now, it's it's not just that Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus were very common and ordinary. They would have blended in with a crowd and not be noticed. But so were Simeon and Anna, like just kind of old people who were just dismissed, all by themselves doing their super religious things. Yet on this short trip to the temple, they were the only people who had any clue what God really was up to with this baby, with this family. And year after year, Simeon and Anna lived with this hope one day they would see the realization of God's redemption plan this hope that was rooted in thousands of years of promises to God's people that he was coming and then a specific word you will see him before you die they had hope rooted in the promise of God hope rooted in the word of God not hope rooted in circumstances of life or just their wants and wishes and this is the difference between the hope of the world And the hope of God. The hope of the world is just wishful thinking. It is based on uncertainty. And it is an expression of our wants and desires, which can be good. Just the examples that we've already seen. Simeon and Anna had this hope and desire they would see the Messiah. God had promised the Messiah. God had promised them they would see the Messiah before they died. And so their hopes and desires were in line with God's word. Contrasted with the old Baptist preacher I mentioned earlier. Great desire. He wants to see Jesus return. Who doesn't want to see that? But not in line with God's promised word. And therefore not something he got to experience. It's more wishful thinking. Biblical hope is not based on uncertainty, but rather certainty. The character and nature of God, the word of God, the promises of God. God says this is going to happen. We believe it. Faith. And then we are filled with hope waiting for it to happen. Even if we don't know the timing, we know the promise. So faith is waiting for God's promises to come true. And until then, we need faith. And when it actually happens, our faith becomes sight, our hopes become realized. We don't need that. We We won't have faith and hope in the eternal state because all the promises of God will be true. And be fully realized and fully experienced for us. But until then, in the waiting, we have faith. In the waiting, we have hope. We know we assume Simeon is old. Luke doesn't say, but when he prays, now you can dismiss your servant in peace. It seems like this was the last thing he was waiting on before he died. We know Anna is at least 100 years old. Year after year, waiting and trusting the word of God, the promise of God. Filled with hope, but still waiting. The Bible is filled with examples of this kind of hope. Hope rooted in the certain promises of God while waiting for them to become reality. Abraham, for instance, is told by God at 75, he would be the father of many nations. He and Sarah are childless. He is 100 before they have Isaac. 25 years of waiting. Um, And we have in Romans 4 a picture of what that was like for him. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, the one who gives life to the dead, which biologically, physically, Abraham and Sarah, their, their hopes of having children were dead at that age. He calls things into existence that do not exist. He believed, Abraham, hoping against hope so that he became the father of many nations according to what had been spoken. So will your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because, verse 21, he was fully convinced that what God had promised he was also able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. God gave him a word, a promise he believed, hoping against hope. He had a hope in God's promise, and this was set against hope. What seemed to be and was impossible in the world's eyes, only possible in God's economy. Abraham had hope in the face of hopelessness against hope because he believed God. No one else on the planet thought Abraham and Sarah could have a baby that age. God changed his name from Abraham, from Abram to Abraham, father of many nations. And he would meet people and he would introduce himself. You're the father, Would tell me about all your kids. Well, I actually don't have kids yet. And in the face of that hopelessness, he had hope. One day he would and all these promises would become true. You can read through Hebrews 11, the Faith Hall of Fame and see more examples because faith and hope are so intertwined. God speaks, God promises, we believe and therefore we have hope. Until the promise is realized. This kind of hope is biblical hope and is transformative. A simple illustration might help some of you. Two employees are hired at the same factory to work the same exact job, something really mindless and meaningless. Like you're just sitting there uh, attaching something to something else, and you just do it repetitively all day long, eight hours a day. Equal qualifications, equal job, equal hours, everything. One employee is told, after 12 months of doing this job, we're going to pay you at that time. You've got to do it 12 months before we pay you. We're going to pay you $15,000. The second employee doing the same exact job is told, after 12 months of doing this job, we're going to pay you $15 million. These two employees have lunch one day, and they're talking about how things are going in the job. Do you think the employee who's only promised $15,000 is gonna have a different perspective than the employee who's promised fifteen million dollars. The fifteen thousand got person is going to be looking for more jobs. This is boring, I hate this, and it's not worth it. The fifteen million employee is gonna be able to hang on and wait a little while longer. It's not so bad. I can do this for a year, sure. That's a, a picture of the difference it is to live with hope and live with hopelessness. Simeon, Anna, Abraham, those in Hebrews eleven and others live. With hope that flowed from faith in God and God's promises which gave them a buoyancy to persevere, to endure, to suffer. Even experience joy and peace because their faith was in what was certain and so their hope was certain and full. We might struggle to enjoy this kind of hope because of at least two reasons, maybe more. Either we put the weight of our hope on uncertain things. Or we treat God's promises as uncertain, which is unbelief. God has promised. We aren't experiencing that. We don't believe it's true. We question it. So we don't have hope. Or we're putting the whole weight of our hope on things that are shaky and shifting. We root our hope in the uncertain. We have desires and expectations for things to go a certain way. We hope they go the way we want. We get excited because our expectations are elevated. Yay, this is actually going to happen. We experience this hopeful joy, this hopeful buoyancy, this light and excited air that we breathe. I'm really, like, I'm, the, the, the world seems brighter today. I'm really looking up. And then reality hits. Our balloon is popped. And we come crashing back to reality. And maybe it's not really thing, anything awful that happened. It's just that our expectations weren't met. And some of us ha- have ridden this roller coaster so much that we've developed mechanisms to help and protect ourselves. We do things like really try to keep expectations low, to not get your hopes up so that your hopes don't get dashed. Not naming names, I'm just, I've heard that it happens. Uh, William Carey, father of modern missions, he was known for saying, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Some of us would rewrite that, expect not much from God. Mm. So attempt nothing really risky for God, or at least nothing so risky it gets us too excited, because then we may have our hopes dashed. See, the problem isn't having hope, it's what is your hope rooted in. If we put the full weight of our hope in uncertain things, like Thanksgiving with the family to go perfectly well, Decorating for Christmas with the kids its going to be joyful and happy. We're going to have Christmas music playing and hot chocolate flowing out of the kitchen and we'll be dancing and singing. Christmas shopping to be smooth and easy and a piece of cake Our more serious things that our marriage would survive and thrive and the love that we enjoyed when we dated, when it was so exciting and fresh. That's going to be something we experience year after year after year. Or that our kids would act right and always do what we say with joy and gladness because they love us, right? Yeah. Or they would mostly stay healthy or that somehow we can keep them healthy because all the germs are, are outside of our house. If We just stay in our house. We won't get any germs. And that's just when they're little, there's all kinds of hopes we have about the kind of adults that we hope they turn out to be. We have hopes related to our jobs, hopes related to our income levels, our financial security, the financial ability that we'll have, uh, what we need to have to do what we want to do, have some financial freedom. We can take a vacation. We can invest in Bitcoin or whatever, you know, gamble a little bit, fantasy football, if you feel like doing that, whatever. So many hopes rooted in so many things that are so uncertain. Instead of this joy-filled buoyancy that we can experience through the mess of life, we just ride the emotional roller coaster like everyone else rides, who lives with worldly hope. And we employ the same kind of defense measures as everyone else. Keep expectations low so hope doesn't get too high and disappointment doesn't get too low. Hopelessness abounds in our culture. Like, is anyone really excited about another presidential election? Really? Ooh, yippee. That's going to be so much fun. Or if hope abounds so often, it's just shallow hopes rooted in the highs and lows of life. What we are given is this opportunity through Jesus to live with biblical hope. This deep, joy giving, rock solid hope that comes from God Himself. A hope that can't be rattled. And it starts with God's promises just like it did for Simeon and Anna, just like it did for all of God's people, going all the way back to Genesis 3, where God says, I'm I'm sending a redeemer who uh, will be struck on the heel by the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve in the garden, but he's going to crush the head of the serpent. From that point on, God's people had the hope of the one who would come, the seed of the woman who'd crush the head of the serpent. And it was emphasized and re-emphasized, and more details given throughout the Old Testament the the line from the line of Judah as Jacob is prophesying over his sons and he gets to his son Judah from this line of Judah will come the rod of the ruler the line of the tribe of Judah he's going to be one like the end of Deuteronomy who's who's like Moses but greater than Moses he's going to be one like in 2nd Samuel 7 the line from the line of the king David who will sit on an eternal throne so either the king is eternal or the throne is eternal and we know the throne is not eternal but the king is He's going to be like the Son of Man in Daniel 7, who would appear before the Ancient of Days and rule over all of creation. He's going to be the one born of a virgin in Isaiah 7, the, the one named Emmanuel, wonderful counselor, Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9, the one who would come out of Bethlehem in Micah. And all of God's people lived with these promises that were emphasized and, and memorized so that by the time he gets to the days of Jesus, It wasn't if the Messiah would come one day. They were just arguing over the details of where he would come and when he would come and what it would look like and how they would experience it. There had actually been, if you go back and read uh, the, the, the history from that era, there had been a bunch of other messiahs who had come claiming to be the Messiah and led rebellions and led revolts. So it wasn't even uncommon among the Jewish people for there to be someone claiming to be the Messiah. They had experienced that in the first century. And they had this promise, and it was realized one day. And so our hope starts with God's promises. It starts with, for us, God's promise may be regarding our greatest fear that we share as humans, and that's death. Like, What hope do we have in the face of death? We're a very young church. Death is like way down there, right? We spent Thanksgiving Day with my side of the family, Uh, When we do that we all go uh, to the home my mom grew up in, in the bustling metropolis of Hornbeck, Louisiana. If you know where that's at, you're one of the few. Uh, Twenty-one humans and three dogs in a house for 24 hours. It sounds as fun as it, it is as fun as it sounds. Uh, It could be a reality show. So time outside is super important. We always take some of the kids on a walk. About a mile down the road is the Old Country Church, Pruitt's Chapel Baptist Church. And the cemetery where my mom's parents are buried, along with her brother, um, pretty neat experience. I think I have a picture. Yeah, pretty neat experience taking some of the kids to show them where some of their ancestors are buried. And you know, in your house in Monroe, it's hard to get into a conversation about death and burial and resurrection. But in a cemetery, kids have questions. Kids are curious. So we have kind of an impromptu discussion about death: what happens when we die. Why do we put bodies in the ground? And what happens next? And part of what I share with our kids is the same thing I've said at every funeral I've ever done. um, That when we get to the cemetery, these are places of hope, not just places of death. Because Jesus has been raised, we know the resurrection is real. And the promise of God is one day those bodies that we put in the ground are coming out again. Which is, my, even for me, I've said this a million times, I've believed it for years, it's still mind blowing. And not like this creepy zombie thing, but coming out of the grave, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, to be transformed in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, into this glorified body that will live for all of eternity when Christ returns. So we lay these bodies in the ground with this hope that this is going to happen. These bodies are infected and affected by sin. They can't and won't last forever. Aging is not a surprise. It can't be avoided. It's coming. Death is next. It's coming for all of us. But that's not hopeless. It's not the end. In fact, for us as God's people, death is actually the doorway to true life, everlasting life. Better life, more alive than we've ever been, not held down by these broken, sin cursed bodies. So, yes, we say goodbye to the people we love and we weep because we'll miss them. But through Christ, we will be together soon like, very soon. And that's as certain of a promise as God himself. And if we don't have to fear death, then we can walk through life with a hope that truly is distinct. And we could go from there to other promises of God for his people. I want to read a few for you. Let you take a second to think about how faith in these promises fill us with a biblical hope that can't be shaken. One pastor uh, years ago recorded the promises of God to man and found over 7,000. We're not going to do them all, but just a few. So Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor abandon you. Therefore Therefore we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? What would believing that in the deepest core of your being do to fill you with hope? If you don't have to be afraid of man, if you don't have to be afraid of being alone, because you're never alone if God is with you, how does that change how you live with hope? We see in Isaiah 54 the kind and compassionate love of God toward us. Though the mountains move and the hills shake, my love will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says your compassionate Lord. Ephesians 2.10, we have a promise that there is purpose purpose to our life, no matter what we do. For we are his workmanship. In the Greek, poema, literally poem, work of art, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. There's good works for all of us. God's prepared. That gives purpose to our life. In whatever job, whatever degree, whatever calling he puts us in. It can be a part of these good works we have a purpose to all things we walk through Romans 8 28 through 29 we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for those he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among among many brothers and sisters God works all things good and bad for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And the purpose for all of us, 50,000 foot view, is to make us like Jesus. And he who began a good work in you will complete it. That will happen in your life. He is doing that. It's going to be completed. You don't have to worry about that. He is accomplishing it. Even when you're fighting against him, he's still accomplishing it. Romans 5.5, 5, God's love is poured into us. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given, given to us. might be a good thing to remember as you're spending time at, at the holidays around people who may be hard to love. It's hard for me to love this person. Okay, God says, I have poured my love into you. You don't have to generate it. You just have to let me love them through you. God's always for you and will supply everything you need to do as will. Romans 8, 31 through 32. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. All how will he not also with him grant us everything? Just a little bit of the picture of 2 Corinthians 1. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We have... Christ, we have all the promises of God for us. Philippians 4:19, "My God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What need do you have? Brennan needs a car. Brennan, God is going to supply all of your needs according to His glorious riches. So you're going to get a car according to His glorious riches, not just according to what you and Bailey can do. That's what God does. We, so much so, we don't have to be anxious for anything. Philippians 4, don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. These are so certain we can actually live with peace and not anxiety. Do we know anybody in our lives who could use a freedom from anxiety? Like, it can't be that simple. Like, you, it seems like you're just making it too simple, Jared. Just so have faith in God's promises and experience this unwavering hope. Well, it's only been true since God created everything. Because it's rooted in the character and nature of God, who he is. And it's been true for all of God's people for all of time and even today who are experiencing life in much more difficult circumstances than any of us have experienced with our mostly first world problems, right? If this hasn't been our experience, it's not because it's simple or not true, it's because we haven't tried to live like this, or we've tried and failed and quit asking for God's help to live like this. Like it would be a great exercise for our missional communities and DNA groups. Let's dig deep into assessing what or who are we putting our hopes in. If we're riding high, why? Why are you riding high right now? Are we just riding high because temporarily things are going our way or they look good? If you're low, why? Why are you low right now? Are we low because our hopes are rooted in what's uncertain? Let's examine what God has promised and what God hasn't promised us and work together to make sure our ultimate hope is rooted in what's certain, timeless, eternal. And if that is locked in and our heart is secure in that, then it's, it's okay to get your hopes up for something that may or may not work out. Because it won't crush you and lead you to a pit of despair if it doesn't work out. Because the foundation is secure, the floor is secure. God Himself and His Word, His truth, and His promises. It's also a great way to open the door for the gospel conversations to those who need Jesus. Like ask people you're in a relationship with to examine who or what are they hoping in? And how is that working out? Are they enough? Is it enough? We're not promised health, wealth, prosperity in this sin-cursed world and sin-cursed bodies. We're not promised heaven on earth and the end of all suffering, sorrows, and injustice. We're not promised kids without sin natures or kids that don't get sick or kids that don't stray. We're not promised easy marriages, easy jobs, and a house and a car that never break or need repairing. We're not promised genuine relationships that don't require work because both of you are sinful. We're not promised to be loved and adored by everyone. We're not promised fame, wealth, power, achievements. But what we are promised is so strong, so true, so everlasting, that it's more than enough to endure everything we do face because it's rooted in the character and nature of God because it's rooted in the reality of Jesus Christ, who's alive in us. Therefore, we live with hope. Father, thank you for the reality of Jesus, that we celebrate this season, that we celebrate every Lord's Day when we gather like this, that we're about to celebrate through this meal, focusing on your body and your blood that were shed for our sins. Thank you that the person and work of Jesus make hope something attainable for us because it's a gift of your grace as we're believing you the person where could jesus make hope something that is truly experienced by your people and is unshakable and is rock solid father we we ask for your help this morning sometimes it's hard to see We have been crushed by our own sins. We have been crushed by the sins of others. And it's just really hard to see your truth. It's really hard to see your goodness, and it's really hard to see your promises. We ask that you would break through all of that and help us to see again. Give us eyes to see and ears to believe again in who you are that transcend all the junk that we experience. In your character, in your nature, in your love, in your truth, in the reality of Christ, help us to see beyond all the junk that gets in our way and believe again and be filled with hope again and experience this unshakable hope again. Or maybe for some, today will be the first day as they come alive in Christ Jesus and trust in him for salvation. Do all these things because of your goodness and grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.